how to become a better you. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for this Sermon of the Seventh Sunday of Easter, May 16th, 2021, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. How do you become a better you? A whole segment of the publishing industry is devoted to self-help books, but those assume that our problems can be solved by ourselves. All of us are sinful and unclean, so that our desires distort into potentially deadly cravings. Matthew Dawling reminds us that God sent Jesus to make us new creations, that his commands are meant for our flourishing, and that the testimony of the Holy Spirit has the power to change us into better versions of ourselves, so that we can be agents of the life-giving kingdom of God in our tumultuous world. Before we begin, are you ready to get out of the house? Ready for a trip? Join David Pelegi in Poland, August 9th through 20th, 2021. Take a deep dive into 1,000 years of Jewish history. We'll start in Warsaw and work our way to Krakow. We will visit medieval cities, castles, and churches to better understand the historical context of the Polish Jewish experience. We'll also touch on the Hebrew Christian communities that existed before World War II. Land cost is less than $2,000. Visit narrowbridgetour.com for more information. Narrowbridgetour.com Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is from um, the book of 1 John, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 9. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel portion is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning at verse 6. Please stand. As we hear the good news of the teachings of the Messiah, Jesus says, 
I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading. Um, Very good morning. It's lovely to see familiar faces of friends. Um, I'm going to be focusing on John 5, 9 to 13, which is going to be looking at God's testimony. I just want to recap. It says, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I'll be looking at his testimony, why it's greater, what is life in the Son, and how do we apply it to our lives. So let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the incredible privilege of being able to worship and to come together without fear of persecution. Thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray, Father, that as we worry about things going on in this world, and problems that we have in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. I just pray, Father, that you would help us to focus on your word and to put those things aside. I pray, Jesus, for your spirit to guide us and to lead us, and may your spirit also um, just, just lead me in bringing this text to light. Amen. Um. I need to ask your forgiveness because I'm going to be giving a couple of anecdotes now and then. But um, my question to you is, what is the best version of yourself? How do you become the person that you want to become? Do you want to become a better mother, a better father, a better grandparent? Do you want to become a nicer person? What are the things that only you may know, or maybe your spouse, um, that you would really like to change? I want to give an example of a family Rubicon for me, which uh, I'm not very proud of, but uh, 
my kids just laugh now. On a Friday afternoon, we were sitting at home, and um, I think it was Zoom time, so it was lockdown, so everyone is in the, in the house, and everyone was a bit fractious, and I thought, let's do a nice pizza meal for everyone. So we sat down, made the pizza, everyone sat down, well, actually, after a lot of shouting and trying to get people, they finally sat down to the table. And then as after we said grace, as soon as I was about to serve it, one of my boys uh, complained, Dad, da, 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 and I just got cross, and I did this. And my fist hit the edge of the pizza plate, and the pizza plate went flying into the ceiling with red tomato sauce everywhere. So now whenever I'm with my kids and they say, Dad, um, don't have another pizza moment, uh, <laughs> I know it's quite important to, to take these things into account. I think the point is the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. That's a Scottish proverb. Um, I also recall another incident many years ago when my dad made a special plan for us to go away on the weekends. And we went away to the Hartebeersport Dam in Johannesburg. Oh, it's actually closer to Pretoria. And um, he reversed the ski boat into the lake. And unfortunately, the boat didn't stop and the car went in as well. <laughs> my dad was not entirely happy about that. But I think the point to make here is that the world in many ways has responded with self-help books. And some of them are actually really good. I mean, I love a book by um, Deep Works by Calvin Newport, um, really how to you know, engage in more deep focus in our distract age with checking our phone every 30 seconds. Um, there are also other books I've seen which I've read, sort of how to win friends and influence people. I think there was Dale Carnegie in the 80s. Um, also another one which helped me in my understanding of women was men are from Mars and women from Venus. I remember reading that a long time ago. Uh, there's some more absurd books such as Anybody Can Be Cool But Awesome Takes Practice. And really a New York article said, um, it was, said the problem is we're improving ourselves to death. That's what the New York Times said. And why is that? What is the critique of self-help books? Well, it assumes that problems can be solved. It assumes that both the problems and the assumptions make sense. But the reality is that we are irrational human beings. Very often, we don't quite know why we're grumpy. We don't know why we behave in certain ways. Amazon learned the hard way around this. When they introduced um, the free shipping category uh, globally, so you can click and it's shipped for free, the sales rocketed. But in France, it didn't rocket because they put a one franc uh, um, cost for the posting, which is negligible. It's like 10 euros cents in those days. But because it was a one franc cost, people didn't want to go and buy more from Amazon. Now, I must say, people tend to wait an absurdly long time in a line when something's for free. I remember in our church in Sierra Leone, and our boys were quite young then, and there were about 70 kids all queuing up for these really nasty knickknacks. But it was free. They had to be in that queue. And I have a picture of them sort of rugby tackling kids just squashed up to, in order to get that. I guess the point is that we are irrational human beings. Um, we also find that good desires, even if we have good intentions, can often be distorted into cravings. We may have a desire to become liked, which actually then becomes a need for acceptance. Or a desire to marry could be an obsession of dating multiple partners. 
or desire for accomplishment can be desire for recognition. Or your desire for security can mean that you're quite obsessive about your money. So often our good desires can be distorted into cravings. And what we find is the Bible is very clear about that. In Romans 3.23, it says, For we, have, we, are all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Not a few of us, all of us. Every single one of us. I want to give a, 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 a slight bridged joke. And you can change the nationality depending on who you have it in for. But let's take an Englishman, a Welshman, and a, and a Scotsman. Okay, I have to be careful. And they're standing at Brighton, and the first one runs, and they get to the pier, and he runs, and he jumps three meters, splosh, into the water. And the next one runs, and he gets five meters, splosh, into the water. And the next one's like a real champion jumper. He gets eight meters. But the Irishman sitting on the side says, what are you guys trying to do? And they say, well, we're trying to, we're trying to get to France. The reality is, I know it's a pithy uh, um, an, uh, analogy, but the point really is that um, it's impossible to attain God's standards. Isaiah 64 also reminds us in verse 6 that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even the best things that we do um, without Jesus are filthy rags. Um, Isaiah, there was Isaiah 64, sorry. Isaiah 6 reminds me when Isaiah was in the presence of, of God when he in a vision And he stands before God and he says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Paul himself in Romans 7.15 says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living inside me. So really the point here is that we're not able to attain God's standards. Uh, We often desire things that actually destroy us in the end. Now we can accept a human testimony, but I want to talk a little bit about God's testimony now and why it's greater. God's testimony, to an extent, is saying that he is a good and loving God who loves us and accepts us and helps us with our lives. But we know that we are not struggling against flesh and blood. We are struggling against rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And so often we turn our wartime walkie-talkie access to God into a domestic intercom to improve the furnishings around our households. The God's testimony, what it's saying is that we are actually a new creation. Verse 19 talks about being children of God. This is a radical new identity. God doesn't want to just change a few broken parts in our lives. No, he wants to radically change us with a new identity. And that is what we have available to us. We become a new creation. The passage here explains the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what is this evidence? Well, the evidence is that God's voice was at the baptism, declaring that this is his son in whom he is well pleased, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Raymond Brown, a commentary, says that Christ's witness to Jesus, who is the truth, is the Spirit whom the Father sent. So the Holy Spirit is the most convincing witness. Why is that? Because 
through indwelling, he is in our hearts and part of a believer. The ultimate blasphemy referred to in verse 10 is when we reject this divine witness. Another point we find is that every day we are being shaped. Every day we are being shaped. We are never the same person. Decisions work together. Desires, we often desire things that destroy us, as I mentioned. Um, Sometimes we may think, oh, actually freedom is exactly what I need. But actually unfettered freedom brings death. The sexual revolution, did it bring joy? No, it brought divorces, it brought abortions, increased, and HIV AIDS as well. Plato himself quoted, he said, the tyrant who thinks he can live without rules is actually the greatest slave of all. Why is that? Because he's at the whims of his mercurial and changing desires. So my question to you is what rules or restraints will lead to the deepest flourishing in your lives? What rules or restraints? I love music. One of my favorite pieces of music is the, uh, what is it, uh, Mozart's Clarinet Concerto. It gives me goosebumps whenever I listen to it. I know David loves Van Morrison and, uh, and other music, but why does it work? It works because there's a theory of music. There are rules and structures behind it. A lot of us enjoy sport. Neville and Carol were watching uh, Chelsea sadly lose yesterday but, uh, in the FA Cup final. But the reality is it's a great sport because there are rules, and that's why it can work. So the question is what rules or restraints will lead to your greatest flourishings? His commands are actually meant for your good. When I was um, well, younger, at least, and we were raising our kids, we still are, But um, we did a parenting course on raising kids God's ways, I think by Mike or something, Uzo. And it had a lot of practical measures and how you can raise your kids. And I must say it helped us immensely. But what it did mention to us is actually a lot of parenting skills is like a tennis ball. You take a tennis ball and you squeeze it. But what happens when you let go of the tennis ball? It bounces open. And that's our human nature. Our human nature is such that we ourselves cannot pull ourselves by our bootstraps. Actually, we need the Holy Spirit to do it. I can think of the times when many times when I I play in the sand on the beach and the tide would come in. And we used to set up sandcastles with the kids. And then the tide. But you do it so that you can fight the tide. And that's part of the fun. But like the inexorable tide that comes in, at the end of the day, it's gone. And there's nothing left there. And the point really being is that Our human endeavors on their own are not possible. Um, The world's witness or or people's testimony is mercurial and it changes with the times. Um, My perception of being a Christian has changed. I remember I became a Christian about 30 years ago. And in the beginning, it was like a moral good to be a Christian. You know, it's good, solid. You're a Christian and you do something well and make a positive contribution. I'd say the 90s, I felt it's a lot more neutral. And then in the 2000s, it's definitely been a lot more hostile because of the exclusive claim to truth. D.A. Carson talks about this in his book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. His quote, he says that contemporary tolerance is intrinsically intolerant. Allow me to explain. The older view of tolerance is that there are three assumptions. The first is that there's an objective truth out there. 
and you should pursue it. The second is that, sure, you're not necessarily going to agree with the person that you're arguing against or that other person, the truth of the other person claims. But because of an unhindered exchange of ideas, through free inquiry, eventually the truth will come to light. Sadly, that's not the case. And we do see an increasing intolerance of tolerance in our society now. But what does it mean for us? We as Christians need to engage our brains. We need to ask the tough questions. Why does God allow suffering? Or why is there suffering in the world? We need to ask these really tough questions and be able to respond to people around them. Um, I was quite struck by a book, Lee Strobel. He wrote the book, A Case for Christ. It's been turned into a movie now. Lee Strobel is a bit of a caustic Chicago um, researcher, uh, journalist. Excuse me. And uh, his wife becomes a Christian because uh, their son, by some miracle, um, is actually healed from some, some accident uh, through someone intervening who happens to be a Christian. But this convinced the wife that God is real. So she became a Christian, and Lee was very upset that she's becoming, as a world would call us, all religious. So he set out on a tenacious uh, uh, um, mission to disprove Christianity and to disprove the, the resurrection. At the end of it, he said that actually there's more evidence that the resurrection is real than Shakespeare's own works were written by Shakespeare himself. The point is, if the resurrection is false, well then... Jesus is just another saintly victim, and the cross is a symbol of defeat. But we know this is not the case at all. Another point I want to read to you, do we think we have all the time in the world? I'd like to please allow me to read you an obituary. Sanchez Alvarez, died Sanchez Alvarez, 23, World Boxing Council featherweight champion, and one of the world's best fighters of injuries after his Porsche 928 collided with two trucks, just north of Querétaro, Mexico. A school dropout at 16, Sanchez explained, I found that I liked hitting people, and I didn't like school, so I started boxing. A peppery tactician, he wore opponents down for late-round knockouts. His record, 43-1-1. I don't know what that means in boxing. Maybe someone can translate for me. I'd like to step down undefeated, he said last month. I'm only 23, and I have all the time in the world. That was Salvador Sanchez. As surely as when David stood before Jonathan, and he said, as surely as the Lord lives, and you live, there is only a step between me and death. And I think that's a healthy reflection to have in our lives. What I want to look at now is life in the sun. Life in the sun. Okay? God has given us, this is God's testimony. He's given us eternal life, and this is life in his son, from 1 John 5. We may think the kingdom of God is a long way away. We may think that, you know, we believe in life after death. But that's not the case. It's closer than you think. It's now. We can enjoy the fellowship and intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ right now. It's not correct that we can think that life is only after death. Christian Aid, which is an organization that secures people's rights to services essential for healthy living, their motto said we believe in life before death, not just after death. So 
how does this impact on our lives? I want to give an example on, on something uh, a non-Christian friend humored me with another story. I'm a keen mountain biker, and I was cycling in uh, Namibia with three friends. None of them were Christians. And I was commenting how I imagine what it's going to be like when we go to heaven one day and actually have people working in harmony with one another and not in disharmony. Imagine that the, the, now in mountain bikes, just to explain, you get different types of materials, and they're a big deal. If you have a steel bike, well, you're just starting off. If you have an aluminium bike, not bad. If you have a carbon composite bike, that is amazing, but you're paying thousands of dollars for it. So he had a carbon bike. I said, just imagine what it's like in heaven, what you're going to have. You're going to have maybe some other material we don't know anything about. And his joke was to me, was like, well, Matthew, if I ever get to heaven, I'm probably going to have a lead bike. And that's where, where his faith went. I think the point is also that we have a responsibility and an opportunity in our lives in this time right now as we embrace the kingdom of God to be agents of change. Instead of focusing on the negative, and there is a lot of negative to focus on at the moment, the current situation we have on our doorstep, COVID across the world, the ongoing repression, injustice, and inequality that's affecting so many millions of people, including Christians, But if we focus on the negative, instead of that, we should embrace light now and become these agents of change. William Wilberforce was a British politician who led the abolition of the slavery, of the slave trade, in the late 18th century. It was was a 30-year battle that saw the abolishment of the slave trade in 1833, only three days after his death. No, before his death was the slave trade abolished. And John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was his friend and said to him, because William Wilberforce came to him and said, I've had enough of politics. I'd like to go to be a vicar. But John Newton effectively said to him, no, you've got an important role to play in your place where you are now. How can God use you there? I'm paraphrasing it to an extent. And the question is, how can God use us in our lives right now? We may think that, oh, we'll only be effective in some other stage of our lives but we can be effective right now. As David said last week, 2,000 years ago, there were 50 to 100 believers in Jesus. Praise God, we have around 2 billion people who believe in Jesus. God is working through these difficult times for sure. How do we bring some of these measures into our lives? It's great to talk about theory, but what about the practice? Well, the spiritual practices, very simple, of worshiping, of um, um, showing hospitality to others, sharing your time and your resources are key. Accountability is always great. I mean, I've been so privileged to have a friend who, for the past 20 years, we've spoken to every month on a Sunday night, once a month, and we just chat and we pray for each other and each other's families. And for 20 years, we've had that friendship. And that's just been an incredible beacon or sort of a pillar for me. Also, praying is important. Um, rest. Do we rest? Now that um, my family's relocated to South Africa, I've, we've had to be quite disciplined in saying, actually, there's no Shabbat there. But why can we not carve out a Sunday when we actually don't run around doing tasks, which is very easy to do when you're fixing your house and all that stuff. Um, the Holy Scriptures, they're referred to as like letters from home. How are they guiding us? How are we soaking them in as we spoke in Psalm 1? How are we absorbing them? These spiritual practices are the habits that shape us 
and place his truth at the center of our hearts. So lastly, in conclusion, how do we shift our life based on his testimony to become the person you would like to become? Well, the first question is, do we believe his testimony? Um, You may know the movie Shawshank Redemption. I was a great fan. I still am a great fan of it. With Tim Robbins, who who plays Andy Dufresne. It's also got Morgan Freeman in. Uh, Also another one of my favorite actors. But Tim Robbins is, uh, he's imprisoned, uh, you know, wrongly. And the corrupt warden, in effect, wants to keep him there as long as possible because he's able to manage his corrupt enterprises in in the local areas. So... There's a very sad story when actually um, an old gentleman who's been in prison probably for 30, 40 years, I don't know how long it is, doesn't say in the movie, but he goes home and he packs his little box, his shoebox, and he takes it home. And the change is too daunting for him. He hangs himself, tragically. Morgan Freeman, on the other side, he's very similarly, he's also released later on, but he actually manages to embrace the change. He manages to adapt. So why couldn't he try his new life? And sometimes, why can't we try our new life of our identity in Jesus Christ? The truth is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He introduced humility in a brutal civilization. He modeled generosity, kindness, compassion. He wept. He dignified women when women were seen as second-class citizens. He came to change human lives. He didn't come as a historical figure. He conquered death through his death on the cross. It's an incredible claim. It's a wild claim, but it's true. If we embrace it, God will bring about unprecedented change in our lives. Truth reshapes your identity. That's the point. This is the truth that that can reshape your identity. And maybe you are not the person you want to be because there's an area of your life that you haven't surrendered fully. And it's necessary to reflect on that. Ephesians 4 says, don't give Satan a foothold. Are we giving Satan a foothold in our lives? The reality is, as Christians, we all struggle with sin. That's every Christian. But there is grace, there's forgiveness, and there's love. And there must be moments, there may be moments when we don't believe in God's testimony. But John says very clearly that if we ask for forgiveness of our sins, he will forgive and he will purify us. So in closing, this text really reminds us that the gospel has the power to change lives if we just trust his testimony, that we are the children of God and a new identity. Then we can have life through his son. Raymond Brown says this passage assures us that we are, we as his children share in this divine life. I just noticed only practically now, but if you look on the wall there, there's a plaque to Charlotte Tate Ellis, or Charlotte Ellis. And it says, in Christ, all be made alive. She died in 1938. Well, bless her. But that is an opportunity we can enjoy right now. I want to close with the last quote, which is one of my favorites. It always makes me reflect, which is saying, are we too easily pleased? C.S. Lewis It says, it would seem that that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible message of having a new identity through you, Jesus. Lord, we have fallen and we're broken and we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And we pray, Father, that your spirit will help us. We surrender to you parts of our lives where we may be hiding them in darkness. And pray, Father, that your glory will come. Please change us. Make us into new, a new creation as children of God, as you say, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we can share this incredible message, this truth, with so many others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.